Good morning, guys. We are in the book of John. Again, like Jonathan here said, this is a family service. The purpose isn't necessarily so we can just close down classrooms because we need more volunteers, although I will say we could use more volunteers. That is definitely a reality. But the, the purpose of these Sundays aren't to make us un- uncomfortable, though normally we do remove chairs and, and make it really uncomfortable for everyone in that way. But the purpose is, is really to do what we do similar to serve the cities. It's the opportunity for us to church to kind of show parents and everyone else in the church that we are a family, that we do this together, that, that every little kid's noise that we hear right now is a joyful noise. It's a noise that, that reminds those that don't have kids or those that maybe they're, they're empty nesters or those that, that don't want kids, that this is an opportunity for us to serve one another. So we truly believe in the value of age-specific classes, but again, we like to do these about three times a year or so just to, again, remind parents that two things. One is if you put your kids in classes, that's awesome, but if you never talk to them about what they learn or talk to them more than just what they hear on Sundays, then you're, you're failing them as parents when it comes to training them up in the way they should go. If you're only expecting the church to do that, then we can't do it. But if you're allowing us as the church to partner with you in this, then by all means, let's, let's do this together and let's watch these kids grow and hopefully know, never know a day where they didn't know the Lord. In the Gospel of John, we're beginning of chapter 2. If you want to turn there, you can. You can also look on your electronic device. Uh, John has been kind of laying this out. He's not hiding the fact that he's, his entire purpose, his primary point for writing this book was so that everyone would proclaim that Jesus is God and that they would see that life comes in knowing Jesus Christ. And so they, they, he, he lays out this gamut of, of witnesses, so to say. To start with, he starts with John the Baptist, one of the greatest witnesses of this time, of this day. And he, he says John the Baptist was just a forerunner. He was just pointing to Jesus. And then he moves to disciples and says, look, these disciples, as, as incredible as their life has become, they were just there to point to Jesus. And now, like any good person that's trying to make a case, that's trying to show some kind of validity in something, he wouldn't just take the eyewitnesses. Now he wants to give examples of how this happens, examples of Jesus's lordship. So all of chapter one is showing these different different testimonies, but now John moves to show proof of Jesus and his lordship and the power with which he came. He goes to the miracles. Now, what's interesting about miracles is in John's book, he only hits eight miracles of all of them. You only see eight of the ones that we see. They're just all over in the synoptic gospels in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But in John, we only see these eight. This is the first one in all of them. But, but what's interesting is, is John always uses the words, instead of saying miracle, he says sign. It's a sign. John always says signs instead of miracles. So it's not just a simple like display of power, but instead a significant display of power that point to deeper realities that could be perceived with the eyes of faith. And so even though Jesus calls them works, I'm doing a work or this is a works, he says ultimately these are signs. These are pointing you to who Jesus is and what he's going to do going forward. The miracles Jesus perform are one of the most powerful and convincing proofs of his deity. He's setting up a series of signposts to take us through his story. The signs are all occasions when Jesus did what he just promised Nathaniel that he would do, right? They are moments when to people who watch with at least a little faith, the angels of God are going up and coming down 
at the place where Jesus is. There are moments when heaven is open, when the transforming power of God's love bursts into the present world. And that's what these miracles are. And even when we read them, we look at them from a historical perspective, I think they lose their, their, we lose our marvel in it. We lose our marvel. In this day, miracles and signs were something that every single Jewish person wanted. That's why they kept asking, Jesus, show us a sign, show us a sign. They, they wanted to see these things. I'm afraid we, in our technology and, and CGI and everything else, we are too quick to explain away the fact that God is still doing miracles, that he's still putting out signs to show the point to Jesus Christ in our lives. If you've ever experienced reconciliation, it's a miracle, it's a sign. If you've ever seen, if you remember back coming to faith, like I said, the only thing that we have to be thankful is that we are adopted in children of God, signs. And so here we are in, in John chapter 2. I'll read it real quickly, and then we'll, we'll jump in. On the third day, now this is probably just the third day of the week, not necessarily the third day, but either way, we've been talking about how John is, is saying that the events that happened from John the Baptist to this wedding are right after each other with a little bit of travel time going from place to place. But the third day is probably the third day of the week, Wednesday. This is what they would say here. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, and here's little John's things, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana. In Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Okay, a couple things that we have to understand here. First off, in first century Palestine, weddings were a major event. They didn't have a lot of things to celebrate and a lot of things to, to party for, so they took they took weddings in in this day, and it was like usually about a week long ordeal. They would spend all week doing things and hanging out and all sorts of festivities. All family would be there. Most likely that this is a wedding that, that is somehow related to, to Jesus. That's why Jesus' mother is there, and then Jesus invited, and obviously Jesus' disciples would be invited in this way. So most likely there's some kind of relation to Jesus' mother, or, which is Mary, or Jesus in some way, but that's why they're there. Even then, also Mary probably had some role in it. If nothing else, she was just an overbearing mother trying to protect her family because she brings up the issue of the wine. But also something that we have to understand that's totally different, that I'm going to push and plea that we make it back to the way it was. In this day and age, all the husbands, grooms paid for the weddings. I have three daughters, so can we get that back before that happens, okay? But it was on the groom, and really, it was a, an expectation that the groom would have to take care of the whole festivities. And what's really important for us to understand is that they would pay for everything. They would plan this long courtship where they wouldn't consummate the marriage. Essentially, they'd be married, but he would be in a spot where he could, and he could ultimately pay for the entire thing. If, for any reason whatsoever, he couldn't do it, 
it would have brought immense shame on the groom. Incredible shame on the groom. It also would have been, if you remember, in Cana, this was a smaller town, maybe two, three hundred people, so you're not going to hide from anyone. And ultimately, they would have been riddled with shame for the rest of their life if they had just run out of wine. What would have been happening is the bride's wife would have said, you were not ready to take, or the bride's parents would have said, you are not ready to take my, my daughter. You weren't ready. You didn't count the cost. You weren't prepared to care for my child. This also could have been means for a lawsuit. So we were like, it just ran out of wine. Like, what, what does it matter? To them, this is a really, really, really big deal. The wedding was a massive deal. Everyone came expecting to celebrate, to party, to have joy, to enjoy the entire week, the festivities, and it was going to be a beautiful thing that worked through the courtship up to them moving into the home that was built on the groom's most likely property with his dad, and, and this was where their home, their marriage would be ultimately ending at the consummation of the two. That was a big week-long ordeal. And that's what's happening in this situation. And so in verses 1 through 3, we see that at this wedding, all of a sudden, Jesus is invited, he's there, and they run out of wine. And the mother of Jesus says to him, they have no wine. Okay, so again, we assume that Mary had played a role in this in some way. She was helping with, if, if it was just as a family member to help. But ultimately, she comes to Jesus and says, we have no wine. Now, why does she come to Jesus? I think we can say pretty clearly that we think that she can understand that something will happen. And, and, and how do I know that? Because I think she's pretty certain there's something special about Jesus. Now, how do I know that? Let's just call it the virgin birth. I mean, I think at that point, she might have gone, there's something different about this kid. As she raised Jesus, and he never, ever sinned, there's something different about this kid. She leaves, we have the story of him leaving, them leaving Jerusalem and getting miles away. And where's Jesus? Oh, he's 12 years old in the synagogue, in the temple, teaching and, and, and learning and understanding things. There's something different different about him. What we also know, the other reason why she most likely came to Jesus was that at this point, we hear no mention of Joseph. And so it's, it's safe to assume that Joseph has already passed at this point. So she is a widow, which a widow would then come to the care of the firstborn son. So Jesus is this way. We see this all the way up on the cross where Jesus is at the cross, leans down to John and says, take care of her. Take care of her. She's your responsibility. And so, so that's maybe why she's coming to him. But ultimately, we know that they ran out of wine and that that was a big deal. I want to real quickly talk about this. The Bible does not forbid drinking of wine. In this day, in, in, in this day without refrigeration, what would happen is fruit would turn and ferment very quickly. And so wine would happen. And so most often what they did is they watered down the wine to drink it. It was a safe drink for them to drink. And so it was very there, but it was very common. But the Bible always forbids any form of drunkenness, any form, even just what we like to call today, oh, it's just a little tipsy. That's something the Bible strongly speaks against. But wine was a celebration. In fact, we see in Psalm 104, wine was, wine was a, a, a representation of gladness, of joy that would come. And yes, man would always misuse it, but it was meant to be a gift. It was meant to be a good thing. And this is where it is. So normally at the wedding feast, what would happen is they would have these huge barrels of wine that would be made. And again, they saved and saved and saved and saved and saved upwards sometimes to a year, year and a half. And they would then, okay, now I'm ready to do this. And this wine would come. Well, sometimes they would run out of wine and then they would go, okay, we're going to bring in the next wine. The next wine was always the cheaper, more watered down wine. Like we're trying to get it further. You know, sometimes you do it with your kids. No, you don't do that where you kind of spread things out a little bit more liquids because no, sorry, that's just me. Um, but, but ultimately, they would water it down even more. So by the time the last bit of wine comes, it was like flavored water, like just kind of adding a little bit of flavor to it. And that's not the case 
here. What happens? So Jesus, so Jesus says to, to Mary, his mother, says to his mother, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Okay, now I love this interaction. First off, we have to understand something. When he says woman, he's saying it very intentionally and on purpose, and it is not impolite, say to say, like if I were to look at Jen and my wife, I'd be like, woman, that wouldn't go well today, so don't use that, okay? But the reason why he says this is he's, he's establishing something that's so big and so important. Again, every sign is riddled with all kinds of cool teachings in there that we need to pay attention to, but we don't lose point on it. But at this point, we see that Jesus' public ministry is beginning, and what is he doing? He's dis- distancing himself from his, his, his earthly family. His priority now is the, the father and the father only. And so what he's saying, when he says woman to Mary, that is, it, it is not co- uncommon for them to have said mother. That would have been perfectly fine. But woman was, it's, it's kind of similar to like the South ma'am. It's like, it's nice. It's a sign I don't really know you. I'm distancing myself. And so when he says that to Mary, he says, woman, he's saying, look, you have no extra right to the kingdom of God because of your, your alliance to me in, our, in, in being, me, you being my mom. You, this is no more. This is what you even see Jesus later on. He says, yeah, your mom's outside. And he's like, who's my mom? My mother is here, my brothers, the people that have faith. They're my family. And so Jesus is distancing himself in this moment from Mary. And I love what Mary does. Now, I, I mean, I don't know. I know my, my wife and how she loves her kids. And I, I think if, if my son Judas said this to, to Jen later on, it would crush her heart, <laughs> right? Distancing her. But Mary, she just says, okay, hey, you guys, do whatever he says, and walks away. <laughs> like, typical mom doesn't listen to son, right? Like, come on, what are you doing here? Like, okay, just do what he says. Just, you know, just do what he says. But what she does, ultimately, is, is Jesus, Jesus confronts her on this relationship and says, what is this to do with me? He's basically saying, your problem, my problem, how do they align? Why is this, why is this important to me? Why does this connect me to what this situation is? And her answer was just like, okay, all of you, do whatever he says. Do whatever he says. He says, if, if you hear nothing else today, kids specifically, if you could just do whatever God says in your life, you'll save yourself so much heartache. So much pain will be lost if you could just do that. And then he says, the reason for him not doing this, he says, my hour has not yet come. The hour again, and John is always leading to this, the hour is the glorification of Jesus on the cross. We know that that's the hour, that's what he's talking about. He's saying, look, my time has not come, so whatever your will, whatever desire you want, it doesn't, it doesn't align in this way. So why does he then just go ahead and do it? Why doesn't he just do it and save his mom the heartache? Because again, he's trying to show them, I am about my Father's will, and what you're asking of me is a perfect thing to display what God has intended for me to display, to show all of you, working up to the glorification, which is the cross. It says these water jars. Now, this is interesting, and this is just fun for us to know. Water jars, these were big stone stone things. So they, they couldn't be moved, and they'd be hauled out 20 to 30 gallons. And these were normally meant for, for purification. So it's even funny that Jesus put drink in water purification jars. He doesn't use the clay ones. The stone ones were for purification because stone would have been less susceptible to uncleanness versus clay being made by man in that way. And so these were waters that were in place for ceremonial cleansings. Ceremonial cleansing would have been a huge thing throughout the whole week of the wedding from, from the hands to the, to the silverware to the things. There would have been all these cleaning processes, rigorous ceremonial cleansing that would have happened. And that right there is the key 
as to why Jesus puts the wine in those jars. Because what Jesus is doing is he's saying, look, you have this whole idea, this old system, this old Jewish system, and this idea that that purification must be done through water. I'm telling you, purification comes through my blood. This is why when we we take communion, when we do those things, we take of the the fruit of the vine, of of the wine, we're symbolizing the blood that was spilled by Jesus Christ on the cross. And so Jesus, in the first miracle, goes, oh, this is my Father's will. This is in line with my Father's will. Okay, here's what we'll do. And he tells the servants, fill the water to the top. Now, they didn't have a hose, okay? So just think about that for one second. It's hot. They've been partying all week long. They're doing these things. They run out of things, and they're out of wine. And Jesus, who these, these servants, most likely just people that worked at the house or were working for the, for the wedding, had no idea he was who he says he was. Or, or maybe they had an inkling because they saw the disciples or they'd heard murmurs about John the Baptist. But ultimately, Jesus looks at them and says, okay, fill all six of these up. That would have been like, oh, okay. So they grab a little, it would have been like a stone cup. You know, however long that was, all 120 to 130 gallons. So that wasn't a short process. He had to fill it all the way up, and the servants did it. Listen to this. Kids, hear me on this. There are going to be people in your schools that are going to think you are ridiculous for believing in Jesus. If you could just see what that, those servants did there, it made no sense. They had no wine, and they went and filled up water in a purification thing. So why would they fill it up in these, in these things? They, there should have been, they should have been filled in the wine drinking bags. This is, the, this is the different spot. Why are we filling up the purification? This has nothing to do with wine. It was absolutely ludicrous and ridiculous, but you know what they did? They did it. And so my encouragement to you would be do the same. If God asks you to do something that's seemingly ridiculous to this world, don't worry, you're not of this world. You're of a kingdom of God. Move boldly because he's going to do a sign in your obedience. He's going to do a sign that's going to point back to not you doing it. We don't celebrate the story. We don't go back and go, oh, those servants, wow, they're so amazing. No, we all look at Jesus in this story. Do your work. Be confident. Be bold because God is going to do a sign to show someone who he is. So him changing the purification water is essentially Jesus saying, my hour will be like this. I will take the purification rituals of Israel and I will replace them with a decisively new way of purification, my blood. We see this. We see this in in John 6.55. Jesus says, my blood is the true drink. Unless you drink the blood of the Son of Man, you have no life in you. So why is this the first miracle? Not because Jesus wants a good party, although he does. We hear that we will have a wonderful wedding feast in the kingdom of God. And, and just think about this for a second. We're the bride. He's the bridegroom. He's the one that's going to provide everything that's needed for the feast, not us. He's the one that's counted the cost and knows what needs to be placed for this to happen. It's incredible. Jesus plays the role of the perfect, all-providing bridegroom. Out of water comes wine. So they fill the pots, and they do these things, and you, you saw it right here, and ultimately... They pull out this cup, and I don't know if you were that servant in that moment, like filled the, br- the things to the brim, so it kind of ruins the idea that there was some kind of mixture that was added into it, but just fills it to the brim. And who knows how long it took them to fill six 130 to 150-gallon purification pots, which would have been fairly low because at this point in the wedding, they've done all of the rituals over and over and over again, pulling water from these pots. 
And he fills them all the way up. And that servant's like, you want me to take water to the headmaster? Like, he just kind of pulls in. And I don't know, he pulls in and looks, and it's like, that's really dark. Am I in the, like, whoa. And then he walks out. I mean, could you imagine being that guy, like, grinning ear to ear, being like, I just saw the most crazy thing ever. I just saw the most crazy thing ever. I put water in there. I walked that hill. I jugged those. I, I hauled that water all the way up there. And now I'm looking at something that is not water. I bet that servant wanted to be like, but he didn't probably because he wasn't supposed to, right? So he takes it out to the headmaster, which is this is the person at the wedding that was kind of in charge of everything, the, the wedding coordinator, so to say. But this person's role specifically was to make sure that the food and the drink and everything were good before they were given to the bride and the groom because they didn't want to make sure there's no spoiled food, nothing happened. So that's what this person does. And this person takes one drink. It's like, whoa, this is way better than what you gave earlier. Way better. And then he goes in and says, normally you give the worst wine after, after people have drunk freely. That is the word we get drunkenness from. He's not saying that the people at Jesus's wedding, at this wedding that Jesus at, are already drunk and they're doing this. He's saying that's just common practice. You just don't give the good wine first. You give the you give the good wine, you give the you give the or you don't give the good wine last, you give the good wine first. And then once they've drunk freely, then you can get the other stuff and it'll just pass and they won't even notice it. He's saying this makes no sense at all. Well, well why is that important? Because what this display of power is, is a display of transformation. The newness that we become isn't a better version of the old, it's a fully new thing. There's no comparison of our old life and our new life in Jesus Christ. It's exceptionally better. It's mind-blowing. And now, every single person in Cana and the area around would go down. This bride and this, and this bridegroom would go down in history as the people that gave the best wine second. And I mean, who knows what they did with the rest of that wine, because I can guarantee they probably didn't cover all of that. But maybe it was a wedding gift, or they used it to sell some, to make some money to, to provide for their families. This is incredible. And what does it end with? And the disciples believe in him. And you know what's amazing? Jesus doesn't do this miracle in Jerusalem in front of the Pharisees or the Sadducees or the scribes. He doesn't even do it in front of his mom or the wedding party. He does it in front of the servants and his disciples. They're the only ones that see that. He doesn't get up and go, hey, by the way, just so you know, that was me. I mean, I didn't have to get on my seat to do it, but I just kind of told them to do that and look what happened. No, he doesn't do that at all. But what does it say? The disciples believed in him. And you have to believe in some way that affected those servants' hearts in some way. And you know that it came out at some point. We have it in history. Everyone heard about it at some point. Why does Jesus do it? To show transformation. The transformation, one scholar says it this way, the transformation from water to wine shows the effect that Jesus can have on people's lives. He came that we might have life in all its fullness. That's in John 10.10. You might want to pray through this story with your own failures and disappointments in mind, remembering that transformation only came when someone took Mary's words seriously. Do whatever he tells you. Transformation will always take a step of obedience to God. When When we step in obedience, he can transform and do amazing things. Where are you not stepping in obedience to God? Where are you missing? What is the sign that Jesus has been doing over and over and over in your life and you continue to ignore and ignore and ignore or you continue to say, I like the idea of it, but you never ever fully engage with Jesus. You just kind of sit on the sidelines. Where is that? 
Something so simple. Jesus does far more miracles. In fact, John tells us in 21, he says, now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. The things that Jesus did over and over and over again, there's not even room to write them down. But why does he do them? He doesn't do them just to display his power. He does them to show that the power that he has as the Son of God is true. And it's always serving a purpose. This one is wine displaying Jesus' blood, transforming life for those that would submit themselves. Because why? Because John has been saying, Jesus is the Son of God and life is in him. So will you believe in Jesus? Kids, will you put your faith in Jesus Christ? Not in your parents alone, but in Jesus. The purpose of all the signs is to see that Jesus is the Messiah. Often God will show you things in your life. He'll show you that he is who he says he is, and he'll show you that he's working. Will you see them? Will you see him working the way that he is working? I'm going I'm to try and do an example here of, of a little bit of definitely not Jesus' power, but my own little way to try and make it work. But what I want to do is I want you guys to just mark something in your brain right now. Because our brains are like this. When you see something that, 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 that's memorable, you always remember where or what you're doing. I want you to mark in your life what transformation has God done in your heart. Has he transformed you from a, an okay person to a little bit better person? Or has he transformed you to someone who is dead in your trespasses into new life? Do you have life? And if he has, when you see this, let this be a visual reminder of the transformation that Jesus is doing in you that he will complete to its entirety. See, Jesus that day took water, and he didn't even, I don't, he doesn't get up, he doesn't walk around, he doesn't, you know, I always joke about Elijah, like, making up the ways he does things, miracles, these signs that he does, like, eh, try this three times, yeah, no, let's do it four more times, ah, let's, seven, hey, seven time work, great. But, like, Jesus doesn't even, get, we don't even hear it. He just sits in his chair, tells them, hey, you guys fill the water all the way up, and they fill it all the way to the brim, and then all he says is, hey, take the cup out. I liken it to when Jesus does the loaves, right? They're like, they have five loaves. He's like, okay, you feed the 5,000 people. I picture the disciples being like, what? Like, really? And then just kind of putting their hand in and being like, here you go. And then like here, taking smaller pieces for the next person. Here you go. And a little bit smaller and being like, all of a sudden like, wait, what the? Like, oh, man, come back. Get second. Like, this is like just literally, there's, there's, is, there, is it a clown basket? What's going on? And Jesus does the same thing. He doesn't move does immense work in your heart. And my fear is in the church today, especially in America, we lose sight. We miss the signs that Jesus is doing in our lives to show that he is who he says he is and that he will do what he says he does. As simple as, simple as a reminder of, th- of pouring water into, turning water into wine, although this is definitely not drinkable and it's not wine, as simple as this, as simple as this is, it was a reminder for all of those people that Jesus is doing something greater, that Jesus is doing something far more powerful. Simple signs. Guys, God does miracles. The point is this. When you see something, don't marvel at the the sign. Marvel at the one who does the sign. 
Don't marvel that Jesus can do something powerful. Wow, he can, he can heal a blind man. Wow, he can turn water into wine. He can do anything. He is God. Don't marvel at what he can do. Marvel at him. Marvel at the powerful, wonderful, majestic, glorious, one and only life coming through Jesus Christ, our Messiah. That's who we are to marvel at. And so when you see something amazing, when you see someone right now that's, that's struggling with COVID and you see them get health, you don't marvel at medicine doing something. You marvel at the God who gives health by any means that he does it. You don't marvel at the fact that, that when you shared the gospel, someone opened their, their heart to Jesus, that you were the one that did it. No, you marvel at the fact that the Holy Spirit is working in their heart and Jesus is the one that brings life. Don't lose sight of the signs We miss them all too often, but don't by any means get infatuated by the signs. Don't lose sight of Jesus either through the signs. The purpose of these signs is to see Jesus is the Messiah. One scholar says it this way. He says, the present story has all the elements that we shall come to know well as we work through the gospel. It's about transformation. The different dimensions of reality that come into being when Jesus is present and when, as Mary tells the servants, people do whatever Jesus tells them to do. This is what it means to see signs of Jesus, not to be excited about hot pink fake wine, but what that symbolizes, a clean heart where I can stand in the presence of God, not based on my own merit, but based on what he has done for us at the cross. Do you marvel at Jesus? Kids, I, I, know, I know the kids in here, they still marvel at Jesus. I challenge you adults to get back to a spot where you marvel at Jesus, where the simplest things in your life are a reason to be thankful for what he has done and who he is, where you can just wake up in the morning and realize that he is the one that is giving you breath in your lungs. He is the one that is keeping your heart moving. Do you marvel? The band's going to come up, and we're going we're to sing. We're going to worship the God who created us. We're going to worship the God who gives us life, and we're going to worship the God that is our king. Will you worship him for who he is, not just for what he does? Will you worship him for what he's doing in you? not just what he can do through you. Will you worship him? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for for giving us reasons to marvel. We thank you for the way that you continue to show us your goodness, your faithfulness. We thank you so much for um, showing us signs. And God, for the ways that maybe you're trying to show a sign to the individuals in this room, maybe there's someone here today that doesn't know you, someone online that doesn't know you, and you are continuing to speak to them. Would they see water into wine and see the need for transformation of their heart? And if it's not that, God, I pray that they would see, give them the eyes, the faith to see your works. And Father, whatever is, is getting in the way of that, God, I pray that you would just strip them of that. And for those of us that are here today that have been following you for a long time, God, would you bring us back to a spot where we just marvel at Jesus? We marvel at the life he lived, the person he is, the God that he is, and the life that he brings. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.